An ulterior resort is provided in amendments attainable by an intervention of the states, which may better adapt the Constitution for the purposes of its creation. James Madison. I think the people, for it is with them to judge, can, as they will have the advantage of experience on their side, decide with as much propriety on the alterations and amendments which are necessary as ourselves. George Washington. By the fifth article of the plan, we may safely rely on the disposition of the state legislators to erect barriers against the encroachments of the national authority. Alexander Hamilton. The final resort within the purview of the Constitution lies in an amendment of the Constitution according to a process applicable by the states. James Madison. I will venture to add that to me, the convention mode seems preferable. In that, it allows amendments to originate with the people themselves, instead of only permitting them to take or reject propositions originated by others. Abraham Lincoln. Through their state legislatures and without regard to the federal government, the people can demand a convention to propose amendments that can and will reverse any trends they see as fatal to true representative governments. Dwight Eisenhower. It, moreover, equally enables the general and the state governments to originate the amendment of errors as they may be pointed out by the experience on one side or on the other. James Madison. The Constitution provides for both methods and the convention is a safety valve giving the people a chance to act if con Congress refuses to. Ronald Reagan. If you haven't already recognized it, each of those quotes refer to Article 5 of the Constitution. Article 5 is the solution as big as the problem. This is the Free to be Free podcast, encouraging you to assert your liberty because you are free to be free. That's right. Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution is the solution as big as the problem. And if you were with us in our last episode, you would already know that the problem is a federal government that has grown beyond its intended powers and is therefore eroding our personal and economic liberty. So let's start this discussion by looking at Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. And I'm going to read the operative language uh, with respect to the solution that it provides. Here's Article 5. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by Congress. Now that's an excellent example of a compound, complex, run-on sentence, isn't it? 
but let's see if we can simplify it. First of all, what that sentence or that article is trying to do is lay out the process for amending our Constitution. And there are essentially two parts to that. The first part is coming up with proposed amendments, and then the second part is ratifying or the states approving those amendments. And of the first part in coming up with proposed amendments, there are actually two possible ways to do that. The method for ratifying or approving those amendments, regardless of which method they came from, is identical. So let's talk about the easiest path, and in fact the one that has resulted in each of our 27 current amendments to the Constitution. And that is a method that starts with Congress, through two-thirds vote in both houses, proposing an amendment to the Constitution. And once Congress does that, the next step is going to the ratification process. And that first step of that process is Congress selects a method of ratification. They can either choose ratification by votes in the state legislatures, or they can choose ratification by ratifying conventions in each state. So if they choose ratification by state legislatures, the House and the Senate in each state would have an opportunity to vote and both the House and the Senate in a state would have to approve or ratify the amendment for the amendment to be counted as ratified by that state. Now it further specifies that three-fourths of the states would have to ratify any proposed amendment before it became a part of the Constitution. And currently, three-fourths of our 50 states amounts to 38 states. So 38 states would have to approve or ratify the proposed amendment. Now the other method is by ratifying conventions. And this would mean ratification by the people of the state itself rather than the legislatures. So the state legislatures would establish ratifying conventions and the state legislature would control the rules of that convention in its specific state and then the, the amendment would be ratified or rejected by that ratifying convention. And of the 27 amendments that we currently have in the Constitution, all have been ratified by the state legislatures with the exception of the 21st Amendment, which was ratified through state ratifying conventions. In case you're wondering what the 21st Amendment was about, is it repealed the 18th Amendment? That doesn't help much, does it? The 18th Amendment is the amendment that enacted prohibition on alcohol production and sale in the United States, and the 21st Amendment is the one that repealed that prohibition. Okay, so let's go back and take a look at the other method for proposing amendments to the Constitution. Article 5 states that Congress must call a convention for proposing amendments when applications from two-thirds of the states, and currently that's 34, are sent to Congress on the same subject or topic, and then Congress must call the convention. Once Congress calls the convention, the states will appoint commissioners or their representatives to attend that convention, and the commissioners will work to propose amendments. 
Any amendments that are proposed out of the convention will then flow through that same process for ratification. That being Congress selecting the method, either the state legislators or the ratifying conventions. And again, when three-fourths of the states ratify an amendment, it becomes a part of the Constitution. Now that was a simplified explanation of the process. So let's go back and take a look at the detailed steps when amendments to the Constitution are proposed through a convention of states. So it all starts with what's called an application, which is the language that the state legislatures pass applying for the Article 5 convention. One thing that's very important is that each of the 34 states calling for a convention pass language that is identical or nearly identical so that their applications can aggregate and count toward the 34 applications for the amendment or subject matter at hand. Now, as you may know, there are currently a number of different efforts to call an Article 5 convention. Nearly all of them are amendment specific. For example, the Balanced Budget Amendment Task Force or an organization working to call a convention for proposing an amendment of term limits on federal officials. There's even another Article 5 group looking to change campaign finance law through an Article 5 convention. Now the Convention of States project is taking a very unique approach. And actually there are two components regarding the Convention of States approach which are unique. And the first is the nature of the proposal or the application for the convention. Instead of focusing on a single amendment, the proposal focuses on a subject matter area. This means there could be a full package of proposed amendments that come out of a Convention of States Article 5 convention as opposed to a convention that is called for a specific amendment. The Convention of States application calls for a convention to consider amendments in three specific subject areas. The first is to impose fiscal restraints upon the federal government. The second is to restrain the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government. And the third is to consider term limits for federal officials. As of today, 12 states have passed resolutions with this specific language. They are Georgia, which passed on March 6th of 2014, Alaska on April 19th of 2014, Florida on April 21st of 2014, Alabama on May 21st of 2015, Tennessee on February 4th of 2016, Indiana on February 29th of 2016, Oklahoma on April 18th of 2016, Louisiana on May 25th of 2016, Arizona on March 13th of 2017, North Dakota on March 24th of 2017, Texas on May 4th of 2017, and Missouri on May 12th of 2015. So as you can see, the Convention of States is about a third of the way to its goal of 34 states 
passing resolutions with the same language. And this language is absolutely critical in two ways. One, it must be the, nearly the same or identical in every state passing the resolution because this language will be used to guide the commissioners at the convention in terms of the scope of the type of proposals, proposed amendments, which they can recommend. Once the requisite number of 34 states calling for the convention with their applications is reached, Article 5 is clear. Congress shall call a convention for proposing amendments. This is some operative language. The word shall has a clear meaning that Congress has no choice. It must call the convention. The word call also has a very specific meaning. It speaks to a ministerial task where Congress must name the time and the place of the convention, and that's it. They have no role in selecting delegates, in determining the rules, or in any other way controlling the convention. In fact, once the convention is called and called to order, they can adjourn and move to a different location if they so choose. So Congress has a minimal role in the Convention of States process. The next step is all states, even those that did not approve a resolution for the convention, all 50 states will then be able to participate in the amendment proposing convention. And each of the states will select, instruct, and send commissioners to the convention. There's a lot that goes on in this phase. The selection of commissioners for the convention is controlled by the state legislatures. So they have complete say over who is eligible, and this can vary state by state. The same is true of the instructions which will be given to the commissioners, because after all, they are acting as agents of the states, and they cannot do anything that the states do not authorize. The instructions for these commissioners will be the result of a resolution passed by the state legislatures which dictates what they can and cannot vote for. And in fact, many states already have what is called faithful delegate legislation in place that specifies some of the generalities around the commissioners for the convention, like who is eligible to be a commissioner, how they're selected, um, how, how they're going to be judged if they're voting properly, and so on. Now, this can vary greatly state by state, for as I said, each state legislature gets to make up their own rules about how they select and instruct their commissioners. I live in Indiana, and I thought it would be helpful to look in detail at Indiana's faithful delegate legislation. Now, this is not necessarily the same in every state, but this legislation has been held up as a model for other states. So first of all, to be selected as a commissioner, an individual must reside in the state of Indiana. The individual must be a registered voter in Indiana. The individual must be at least 18 years of age. And the individual cannot be a registered lobbyist or required to be a registered lobbyist. And the individual may not be appointed as a delegate if they hold a federal office. 
The faithful delegate resolution goes on to specify a written oath that each delegate must take, and that would be to support the Constitution, faithfully abide by any instructions uh, that are given to them, and otherwise faithfully discharge the office as a commissioner or alternate commissioner. At the time that the convention is called, the state legislature will pass another resolution with specific instructions pertaining to that convention based on its topic. But this faithful delegate legislation also states that the limits placed by the application, that's those three subject matter areas I talked about before, are a minimum standard for what can be discussed or considered to vote on at the convention. Indiana's faithful delegate legislation also goes on to define what happens if a delegate votes or attempts to vote outside their authority. So perhaps they're, they're voting for an amendment that's outside the scope of that resolution. I, I don't know. Let's say somebody says, let's repeal the First Amendment, for example. And if one of the delegates would plan to vote for that or try to vote for it, a number of things would automatically happen. The faithful delegate legislation indicates that the delegate's vote would be null and void. Indiana's application for the convention would be immediately revoked. The delegate would be replaced by an alternate. And then the delegate could be charged with a level six felony, which provides for anywhere from six months to two and a half years in prison and a $10,000 fine. So as you can see, there are some pretty strict controls in ensuring that a delegate from the state of Indiana stays within the scope of the instructions that are given to them by the state legislature. Now, once the convention takes place, the first order of business would be to appoint a temporary chairperson, and that chairperson would preside over the convention solely for the purpose of selecting a permanent chairperson to preside over the convention. Once that step is done, the permanent chair takes over and gets about the business of selecting the rules for how the convention will operate, and after those rules are established, move on to the business of considering amendments. As far as the type of rules allowed at the convention, that will be governed by the instructions provided by each state legislature to their commissioners at the convention. For example, a state could specify that their commissioner could not in any way alter the one state, one vote rule. So as the commissioners at the convention get together, they start to work out proposed amendments, craft the legal language associated with that. The amendments will come before the entire convention and be voted on, and those that achieve a simple majority vote will then be sent on to the states for ratification following the same process we described earlier in the podcast. Now, I think a good way to think of the Convention of States for Proposing Amendments is to think of it as a legislative committee. Our legislatures often work through committees. And one thing about committees is they can't pass anything. They can make recommendations, but a committee cannot pass anything. And in the same way, just this convention 
cannot pass any amendments and amend the Constitution. They can only recommend proposed amendments. In fact, anyone involved in state or federal politics, if you watch closely, you will re realize that although committees cannot pass any legislation, they can be very, very effective at stopping legislation. And that's going to be a key role of this convention is to stop bad amendments. And again, once a proposed amendment comes out of the convention, it will be sent to the states for ratification. And as we talked about earlier, 38 states would have to ratify an amendment for it to become part of the Constitution. And gaining ratification from 38 states is actually much more difficult than it sounds like on the surface. For an amendment to be ratified, let's assume that Congress selects the method where the state legislatures must ratify each amendment. And by the way, if a package of amendments come out of the convention, say four or five amendments, each one would have to stand on its own and individually be ratified by 38 states. They do not go through as one package that the states will vote on. As I said, in each state, the amendment would have to be ratified by both the House and the Senate. That's two votes in each state that have to happen. Now, some inside baseball here. There is one state, Nebraska, which has a unicameral legislature. So they don't have a House and a Senate. They just have a Senate. But for simplification, let's just assume that all 50 states have two houses. So that means in order to gain 38 states to ratify, the amendment would have to be ratified in two votes in each of those states. So 38 times 2 is 76. So for any amendment proposed from the convention to be ratified to become part of the Constitution, it would have to pass at least 76 votes before it become, become part of the Constitution. I would say that's a pretty high bar for it to pass. And if we look at the flip side, it would only take 13 states to shoot down any proposed amendment. Now, that's a little different because you only need one house of the two in 13 states to either say no or take no action on a proposed amendment, 13, and then that amendment is dead. So I hope what you take away from this is the fact that amending the Constitution is something that is very, very hard to do. And that's as it should be because this is serious business. Now I hope the discussion so far has given you a deeper understanding of an Article 5 convention and how the process works to amend the Constitution. But there's something else that is going to be what I'll call a side effect of the Convention of States for proposing amendments. And this, to me, is something that is just critical. And it ties in to the second unique aspect of the Convention of States project. You may remember earlier in the podcast, I said there are two unique aspects to the Convention of States project approach. The first was the unique call or application, which did not specify specific amendment, but defined a subject area 
in which amendments could be proposed. And if you remember, that is for fiscal constraints on the federal government, uh, for restraining the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government, and for imposing term limits on federal officials. Well, the second unique aspect is our efforts to raise up a grassroots army of individual citizens, of we the people. Now, we currently have 2.2 million supporters in this grassroots army, and our goal is to get to 10 million by the end of 2017. One of the most important activities with respect to this grassroots army is education. We are developing a grassroots army of well-educated citizens. They know their constitution. They know the Article 5 process. They know their rights. And that is the side effect I was talking about. I believe that the big side effect of the Convention of States for proposing amendments, when that is called, it is going to trigger a constitutional revival in the United States. Citizens across the country will be spurred on to actually read the Constitution, to learn it, to understand their rights, to learn the process of this Article 5 convention. And when the convention happens, it's going to be the biggest news around. It's going to be televised, and people are going to be tuning in, and they are going to see that we, the people, are the ones really in control. This will result in a generation of Americans like no other. They will be well-informed regarding the Constitution, understanding their liberties and their rights. And there is no greater protection of their liberty than a well-informed population. Now, I started this podcast with a number of quotes, so it's only fitting that I end with another. Here's one from John Jay, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers. Every member of the state ought diligently to read and study the constitution of his country and teach the rising generation to be free. By knowing their rights, they will sooner perceive when they are violated and be the better prepared to defend and assert them. I believe these prophetic words of one of our founders will finally come true as a result of the Convention of States process. Now let me encourage you to be one of the first to apply these wise words of John Jay. I would encourage you to read Article 5 of the Constitution for yourself. And while you're at it, why not read the rest of the Constitution? It's actually not that big of a document, and it is understandable. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. And I'll also post in the show notes a link to the Indiana Faithful Delegate Law, which I reference. Well, that's it for this episode. I'll let you get to work on that homework I just assigned. Finally, I hope that you'll tune in to our next episode when we'll discuss some common objections to amending the Constitution by the Convention of States process. This is the Free to be Free podcast. This is the Free to be Free podcast. I'm Paul Phillips. The opinions expressed in this podcast are my own. You can learn more about the Convention of States project at conventionofstates.com. You can also find the Convention of States project 
on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. The most important thing that you can do at conventionofstates.com is to study and learn the issue for yourself. Then you'll want to sign the petition. This will let your state legislators know that you are ready to assert your liberty through an Article 5 Convention of the States. Until next time, stay free, my friends. 